forward into chapter 4 and, God willing, chapter 5. We'll see how much we're able to cover uh, this evening. So we move right on into the text of chapter 4. And we're immediately signaled that something is changing uh, by John's notice that after these things. So we're moving on past the the letters to the seven churches uh, and now into a new realm of the book we haven't been to before. John says there was a, he saw a door standing open in heaven that he was given access to and a voice summons him up, come up here and I will show you things which must take place after this, which if we compare to chapter 1 verse 19 is the identical wording, write the things which are and the things which which will take place after this. In some semblance, in some form, what we're about to cover relates to the future, at least the future from the time of the uh, situation of of the seven churches. So we're going to, some of the future will be unveiled. Up, up, and away, John is caught up to the vault of heaven and he's, and he's told that he, he tells us he is in the spirit. You can't simply waltz your way into the throne room of heaven. You could try. You won't get very far. Um, but through the agency of the spirit, he is conducted into the throne room, the heavenly throne room where everything happens, the, the command center, the headquarters. And it's interesting if you consider a model of how everything is arranged up in the throne room. Watch this. So in the very centerpiece is the throne. And around the throne, I mean, ideally, I had trouble trying to turn this into an actual concentric circle with the throne in the center, so you'll just have to uh, cut me some slack here. But the throne is the centerpiece. Around, immediately around the throne are the living creatures. There's four of them, and we'll get to them in in a moment. Then the next layer out are the elders, 24 elders. The next realm is that of the angels. And John will describe uh, shortly for us, uh, actually in chapter 5, that there are countless, there are a myriad. He uses some Greek terms that indicate they're beyond, you, you can't number them. And then finally, in the outer realm is the, is the realm of creation, right? Uh, which includes human beings and, and so forth. And so, how oh, residue, it's supposed to be resigway, thanks to spell check. <laughs> resigway writes, the symmetrical, harmonious scene with God at the center of the vision offers a glimpse of the way the world is to be properly Ordered, the balanced orderly pattern parallels the order and coherence that God's reign establishes, but clashes with the earthly reality in which human powers supplant God as the focus of the creation. If you read the creation narrative in Genesis chapter 1, everything has its place. Uh, There's the various days of creation and God takes disorder, right? He takes the formlessness and the void, voidedness of, of what was existing and he puts it all into order and he speaks to it and everything has its particular place. Well, sin disrupted that. And sin has been disrupting that ever since. 
And so in the book of Revelation, God is going to make things right. He is going to redeem a fallen created order and put it back together and restore it once again. And so we encounter the throne, the centerpiece, the center of gravity. And we are told, as John relays uh, what he is seeing and hearing, that one sat on the throne. It's quite, quite interesting, by the way, that he tells us relatively little directly about the one on the throne, right? He doesn't give us a lot of details about what he sees. Tells us a little bit that this being on the throne, he tells us about the uh, precious metals and uh, precious gems that he's reminded of as, as he sees, but it's not until the end of the book that we find that the lamb the slain lamb, the lion of the tribe of Judah, gets onto the throne, and there is one sitting on the throne. It's as though the, two, the images of the one sitting on the throne and the various images of Christ merge together at the close of the book, and it is none other than Jesus Christ, who is the one on the throne, reigning as Lord and God, omnipotent. So one sat on the throne... Very sparse description, like a jasper and sardius stone in appearance. And there's a rainbow around the throne in appearance, like an emerald. We are also told that there's a cosmic storm in progress. Oh, man, you, get, you guys miss. And on my screen, it's actually flashing green. Whoa. I mean, come on, mine is like really cool. Oh, there it goes. It just had to wake up, you know. Still. Yeah, it's not very cooperative. And lightning, the seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Evocative of Sinai, the, if, you, if, if you remember when the Israelites were camped out at the Mount Sinai in the wilderness, lightning thunders. They saw an epiphany up there. Before the throne is a sea of glass. Some have suggested uh, that this may represent the Red Sea or perhaps the brazen laver that was arranged in, in front of the temple and previously in front of the tabernacle. But if, if you think back uh, across biblical imagery, of the sea, the sea is often a wild, almost untamable uh, uh, a place that, of course, had monsters in it, sea monsters, Leviathan, and so forth. And so it's possible that this represents God's calming of the seas. Uh, and it was the sea, and back in the created, uh, in, in Genesis chapter 1, that had to be divided and, and put in its proper place. So it, it seems as though it, it uh, may be a as residue, not residue this time, thankfully PowerPoint got it right, is of this hostile, threatening sea that is calmed by God's presence and holiness. And so of interest, perennial interest, and of a lot of interest to me, are these beings that are around the throne that we're about to uh, meet. What did they do? Well, we're not told a lot about what they do, but we're told some important things about their function. They served as God's staff 
retinue, entourage, escort, and in some cases, couriers. So these creatures and elders and so forth that are there in the throne room are God's servants. They're his staff who serve him. And the throne room itself is a royal chamber, a courtroom, a tribunal, a council, a supreme court, where decisions are made, decrees and oracles issued, and messengers sent forth to proclaim divine edicts. It is the centerpiece of the universe. It is where God speaks. It is where God makes decisions, if you will, where God evaluates and he sits and, and, and reigns over the universe and over history there in the throne room. So we're about to see uh, the unfolding of these beings that are in the throne room. First of all, and by the way, this forms for you uh, nerds and geeks like Arash, forms a, a, a chiasm or a chiasm. It's the equivalent of X in the Greek language where it folds in on itself. So first the 24 elders are introduced. Then these four rather strange and curious creatures are introduced. They're, they're referred to as living creatures. And then the creatures begin to praise the one on the throne. And then finally, the 24 elders praise the one on the throne. So we start by being introduced to the elders. They are seated in thrones around the throne. They're given a very prominent place. They are some kind of leaders, right? We don't know exactly who they are, and John never uh, discloses, or it's not disclosed to him exactly who these 24 individuals are. They're 24 in number. Some have suggested they symbolize the 12 patriarchs of the Old Testament, the, son, uh, uh, the sons of Jacob, and the other, and, and the other 12 symbolize the, the 12 apostles. That's speculation. We don't know. They're but they make up the court where God reigns. They are clothed in white robes and have crowns of gold on their heads. Then we meet my favorite, the four living creatures. Now, some of these actually look like people you know. Let's not go there. I could have some fun with this, but I, I won't. The four living creatures, they are in the most, the closest inner circle around the throne. They are in the middle of and around the throne, full of eyes in front and in back. So these are not normal creatures. The guinea pigs that are staying at the, at the living there at the Lugo Hotel have two eyes each. They don't have eyes behind them, though it seems like sometimes they do, because if you approach their cage, they just beeline it. They run and hide as fast as they can. This, these creatures have, they're almost like spiders. Anyone love spiders? Bunch of eyes, creepy looking things. And John says one of them reminded him of a lion. It looked like it was a lion. The second one looked like a calf or an ox. Another one had a face like a human being. The fourth one looked, had the appearance of a flying 
eagle, and each one had six wings. Now, these, most of us don't normally encounter creatures in real life like this. Strange, weird, bizarre. They remind us, perhaps, of Ezekiel's vision. These same creatures pop up occasionally. And there, they are described as cherubim, who were one of the uh, ranks of the various angels traditionally ascribed to attending to God in his heavenly realm. There were four of those who transported and escorted the divine presence from the temple at the time of exile. And so here they seem to appear again in God's presence, perhaps serving at, at, at various times when God was on the move to to accompany him, to escort him. They also echo Isaiah's sixth-wing seraphim, who cried out, Holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And from what I understand, and I know there's probably some angelologists among us here, the seraphim, from what I'm told, are the highest in rank of all the celestial beings. And so these are uh, God's top top guys, you know, they're the, 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 the top staff that accompany him. We might refer to them, as some scholars do, as hybrids. Kind of, and, and as are many of Revelation's strange creatures, you've got these flying scorpion-like things with, as I recall, men's heads and, and even the beast and so forth, they're they're, they're, they're merging of different creatures put together into one. And so they combine, as Rezegway notes, combine features of the world above with characteristics of this world. They've got wings like angels, but one has the face like a human being. And so there are these creatures that are sort of from the, heaven, they're from the heavenly realm, but they resemble what we see on earth. And you might... Uh, be reminded, for example, of the Egyptian sphinx or the uh, Greek senator. These uh, hybrid creatures that mix uh, different creatures into one. Or maybe even another example would be a mermaid. And so what do these creatures do? They lavishly worship the one on the throne, focusing on God's holiness and power. And it says, John says, they do not rest day or night saying... And doesn't this sound a bit like what we just read about what the seraphim did in the book of Isaiah? Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Notice the triadic pattern. Holy, holy, holy. Lord, uh, three uh, uh, designations, or three times they say holy. Lord God Almighty, uh, and there's three designations in who was, past tense, who is, present, and is to come. It's a way of magnifying, holy, 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 how great is the one who sits on the throne. And so if God is holy, then what does this mean for the seven churches? There I go meddling again, right? Brickle, you're always reminding us of those 
letters to the seven churches. You've told us over and over again that you can't read Revelation and skip the letters to the seven churches. If God is so holy and magnificent, then how do we conduct ourselves here on earth? If he reigns in holiness in heaven, how should we live down here on earth? And if they are eating meat sacrificed to other gods, defiling their garments, committing sexual immorality, how do they measure up to the Holy One on the throne? If those creatures that are in the, the, the uh, direct access to the Lord himself virtually can do, can do virtually nothing but simply worship him for eternity, how holy is that God and how righteous is that one who sits on the throne? And so then the elders join in in worship. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, they also join in and they fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and they cast their crowns before the throne saying what? Saying, you are worthy, O Lord to receive glory and honor and power for you have created all things and by your will they exist and were created. Two, two particular phrases here I want to focus in on or clauses. You are worthy. This Hold on to this, this uh, statement because it will play a very, very significant role in the next chapter. When a scroll is presented and the question is raised, who is worthy to open the scroll and break the seals? So you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory, power, honor, and power. For you have, what? Created all things. Remember, Revelation, in many ways, is a document that is looking back across the span of the whole biblical story, that what we call the meta-narrative. And it's, and it's now looking back at this God who had created all things, but now things are awry. Things have gotten out of joint because of, because of sin, and the nations are in rebellion, and it's a mess down there. And so they are bringing attention to the fact he is the wonderful creator who started it all before it was corrupted. And so this is an invitation to worship. As uh, Craig Keener uh, states, the text invites us to worship today no less than at its first reading in Ephesus. It also invites us to relinquish our fear of human grandeur, which, take, which pales before the majesty of the eternal God. When we come together as an assembly and we begin to raise our hands and shout unto God and we, we begin to adore him, what are we doing? We're actually mimicking what, goes, which, what is going on constantly in heaven. Right? We are joining together and preparing for when we will stand in the immediate presence of the Lord. All right. How do, what's going on here? Oh, there we go. Keener goes on to say, the heavenly court provides a harsh contrast with the pretense of merely earthly grandeur in the court of the Roman emperors worshipped in Asia. So people would worship the emperors and burn incense and glorify and praise the emperor in his entourage as they would pass through, pass through town and had temples built and so forth. But the true worship belongs to the one who sits on the throne. 
And so we come to chapter, that should be chapter 5. It's my mistake. Redemption story, the cosmic drama unfolds. What happens in chapter 5 that's so significant? We encounter a dramatic twist in the plot. We find excitement and anticipation as they build, as a critical new development is introduced in the form of another prop, a scroll. A scroll. So the created order has been violently disrupted by sin. The enemies of God are in rebellion. And a holy and worthy messianic hero and deliverer is needed to restore harmony and equilibrium to the created realm. What was going to fix the creation which has been broken by the, by the power and the bondage of sin? A messianic deliverer. So we're about to meet him. And now I'm quoting actually from a very, very famous, famous scholar. <laughs> after, the, uh, after the critique of the church, Revelation 2 through 3, this powerful episode will usher in the beginning of the final judgments upon the world. In a scene brimming with tension and suspense, attention focuses on a mysterious sealed book held by the one sitting on the throne. And by the way, that's a quotation out of the Apostolic Study Bible. I won't tell you who wrote the part on wrote the, wrote the part on. Uh... No, actually, that's not from the Apostolic Study Bible. That's my mistake. Rewind the tape. It's from the um, Handbook on the General Epistles and Revelation. So, what are we told about this scroll? Minor detail, perhaps for for some of you nerdy types, but I think this is pretty interesting. We are told that it was written upon both on the front and on the back. And the technical name for this is an epithograph. Uh, sometimes the first H is left out, an epistograph, which comes from the word episto, which means behind or rear or behind, uh, back, and the word graph, right? This was relatively rare and unusual compared to a standard manuscript, which was typically only written on one side. And Ben Witherington explains this phenomenon of writing on both sides. It was the normal practice, Witherington writes, in antiquity to write only on one side of a papyrus roll, the front or recto side, which had the fibers aligned horizontally, which made for easier writing. You weren't write, writing against the grain. If you think of ancient manuscripts being produced by strips of papyrus going both this way and that way, you didn't want to, it was rough to write against the grain, so you would write with the grain. He says the back or versal side would only be used if one ran out of space. The point in the case of John's scroll is that it is very full. Can, we put, can I put it this way? God has a lot to say and there's a lot on the horizon that is going to happen. And then the question is posed, the million dollar question, who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? Initially, no qualified candidate stepped forward. In fact, they did a search. No one could be found among the living creatures, the elders, famous heroes, saints across history. I, I hate to break the news, Mother Teresa was not able to open the scroll. She, wonderful lady did a lot of wonderful things. All, spanning across time, all the great, wonderful people, no one. No one either alive on earth nor even in the underworld was, was found who was worthy to 
open it. And John responds with weeping. But wait, he's told, please don't weep. Why? Well, here's the issue. Only, and I'm actually quoting again from another famous scholar, only duly authorized and qualified representatives were permitted to crack the seals on an official document and thus disclose the contents. All others were barred from such privileged access. In this case, the only worthy candidate integrated the traits of a sovereign king and a vulnerable sacrificial victim into one majestic figure. Thank God for Jesus Christ, who is our lamb, who is the lion of the tribe of Judah, who is the only one spanning eternity and spanning all of space, was worthy to open and break the seals. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed. Remember the, 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 the horrific trial he went through, uh, pushing against evil uh, to, to, be a, to be a sacrifice and to give himself willingly on a cross. And behold, stood a lamb as it had been slain. Isn't that a, a strange combination of features? A lamb that has been slain and yet it stands victorious. Jesus died on a cross, was buried in a tomb, but on the third day he rose again. He is the lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world. He took the scroll with no swearing in ceremony. Jesus didn't have to swear on a Bible. No security background check. They didn't have to check with the CIA and the FBI and all of that jazz, the IRS and all that jazz. Make sure Jesus had paid his taxes. We do know he paid his taxes out of the mouth, money out of the mouth of a fish, right? He was worthy. He was innocent. He was the innocent slaughtered lamb that rose back to life. So some reflections on the slain lamb. He's worthy because he conquers, Rezegui says, in a completely different way from the powers of, the, of this earth. Jesus didn't conquer the way the Roman Empire conquered by killing people, bringing in armies and making people line up the way they wanted to and subjugating them, making them slaves, right? How did, Roman, how did the Romans achieve Pax Romana? How did they get cooperation? By the sword. That's not how Christ reigns. He doesn't reign with a sword to kill people. Christ's death on the cross, uh, Rezegui goes on to say, is the is the decisive event that influences the course of history. He goes on to say, and I quote from a below perspective, power and success are defined by Babylon's domination, oppression, and self-aggrandizement. While from an above perspective, power and success are defined by the image of a lamb standing as, as though slaughtered. So John has given us a perspective from above. Things, things look very different when you're looking down from the balcony of the throne room, right? Things are evaluated by a whole different standard than the standards of our world and what define, defines success and power and might and so forth. And so the act of the lamb taking the scroll evokes worship and obeisance. 
And, in chap- and after chapter 4 is two hymns and canticles, the worship intensifies. Watch this. As the living creatures and elders form a joint choir, then countless angels join in, and finally all creation lends its voice. And we are invited as listeners to the book of Revelation to join in the celebration, the, the joyous uh, worship, along with all those arrayed around the throne. And as we'll see in, a, in, a, in, a, in another chapter coming up, uh, those who are sealed and those who are blood-washed will, will form the very outer circle around the throne and will join in the gleeful celebration. Like a chorus in an ancient Greek tragedy, these songs serve to support, accentuate, and comment upon the drama. It's very easy to move very quickly through these these songs or hymns or canticles or celebrations. But it's very important because these choirs are singing and they are describing what is taking place in uh, the text. Citing from Craig Keener, the heavenly worship thus contrasts starkly with earthly worship of the beast. We find the beast later on the book as a Greek chorus would explain the action of a Greek drama. So the heavenly songs in Revelation provide the true picture of the events of the book. No matter what is experienced on earth, God is truly in charge of it all. Are we thankful that God is in charge? Washington, D.C., glorious place. I visited there last week. They're not in charge. They are given a charge, right? They have some powers delegated to them from the people and from God. But ultimately, God reigns supreme from the throne room of the heavens. Hallelujah. And he deserves all honor and glory and recognition for the great and grand things that he's done. So, because of this new chapter, they have to sing a new song. They pull out a new one. They're not just doing the old traditional hymns, right? They create a song for the occasion. The lamb is found worthy to open the scroll. You are worthy, right, to take the scroll to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our gods, to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. Amen. Then the angels join in. A myriad of angels proclaim seven elements. Here's the number seven. Again, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive, watch this, power, and riches and wisdom. It's interesting if you think about why is Christ receiving riches? Well, if you compare it to the, the great whore later on in the book, she's got all kinds of jewelry and decked out with all this lavish clothing and she's a, she's a, 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 corrupt, a, a, a corrupt individual, a corrupt figure. Jesus is worthy to receive all the riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and Blessing. Finally, all creation joins in. Every creature which is in heaven, on the earth, under the earth, right? So the underworld, and such as are in the sea, and all that are in them. Blessing and honor and glory and and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Amen. And the four living creatures said, what? Amen. So this is a magnificent celebration. 
directing praise and glory uh, to the one on the throne and to the Lamb who is worthy to take the scroll and open it up and, and eventually, we'll, as we'll see, uh, beginning in chapter 6, disclosing the contents one after the other. So I offer as we're uh, coming towards the end of our time this evening some reflections. The intense rejoicing of chapters 4 through 5 sharply contrast with the pitiful lament of the beast worshipers in chapter 18 as they witness Babylon's shocking downfall. So we will see later on in the book as Babylon, the, the kingdom of the dragon and the kingdom of the beast is in, is in smoldering ruins. And all those who profited uh, by her, the merchants and so forth, they're wailing in lament to see the demise of their great city. So oftentimes the book of Revelation is used uh, uh, th uh, through fear tactics. It's scary. Well, it's not scary if you're on the right side. If you know where your destiny is, you don't have to worry. It's those who have not repented. And as we'll see, if you look later on in the book, as the various plagues and so forth are poured out, God still gives opportunity to repent. And the, one of the purposes of these judgments is to get the world to repent. Uh, just like they were in the book of Exodus, trying to get Pharaoh to change his mind and let Israel go worship out in the wilderness. But of course, Pharaoh hardened his heart and the Lord helped him out there. Some other reflections. Chapters 4 through 5 capture the Bible in a nutshell, rehearsing God's overall plan of creation and redemption or restoration. So we find in chapters 4 and 5 a cosmic drama that brings together, condenses the biblical story of salvation or redemption. And they serve as a prelude for the judgments that follow. So we're being prepped, right, for the opening of the seals and what that shall disclose about the judgments that are around the bend. Some other reflections. Chapters 4 through 5 can be, that should be viewed as a diptych. Now, that's a fancy word. You can impress, impress your coworkers tomorrow. A diptych. What is that? It is when, two, when you have two side-by-side -side panels or portraits juxtaposed next to one another, then invite, in, invite reflection on how they relate. So it's a two-part portrait or painting. Two different portraits next to one another and, and human curiosity says, why is this next to this? We got chapter 4, chapter 5 next to one another. And here's what Rezegui says. In this case, quote, the first half of the visual diptych, which is chapter 4, acclaims God as creator and sovereign ruler of the world. The second half as redeemer and rescuer of the creation. Guess what? God creates the world and then God steps in to redeem the world. Those aren't, by the way, two distinct separate persons. We learn that that's Jesus Christ. One of the interesting parts of Psalms, by the way, Psalm chapter 2. God has created the world and the world's in rebellion and the nations are against him. So he sets his king on a throne. 
Who is that? That's Jesus Christ. What do we find out? What is the sort of the wink of the Bible? That God has become king. That it was not someone other than himself that he sent. He came himself to reign. Just a little oneness message thrown in there. This is a oneness church, is that right? Oneness church. Okay, the pastor's nodded and said yes. So summary, and we're, we're coming to a close. Witherington says the scenes in 4 and 5 becomes, become John's rhetorical means or his way of persuading of offering an alternative vision of who really is in charge of the world in which John's audience lives. From the natural sight, from, through natural eyes, Rome, right? Rome is in charge. The emperor is in charge. They're going to kill me if I don't worship the emperor, if I don't do what he says. But in this great vision of, of the throne room, chapters 4 and 5, we learn that God is much more glorious and he is in charge of everything. Amen. Some closing questions to think about. In light of our study, or a closing question, in light of our study, what significance does this prayer, Luke eleven two, 2, which Jesus taught his disciples to say, now take? Say it with me. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. Watch this. As in heaven, so in earth. That describes what the book of Revelation really is all about. Having God's will done not only in the heavenly realm, but done on earth. A sneak peek. A sneak peek. A sneak peek. Coming soon to a theater near you. A sneak peek. Aha! The four horsemen. Yeah, there we go, the end. Where did the end go? There it is. All right, we have uh, about five or six minutes for questions. We'll start right here on the front row. Kids always have the hardest questions, by the way. Um, in the first section, you referred to Jezebel and talked about her a little bit. Do you mm -hmm. think she was called... Um, in the third section, you referred to Jezebel. She was called what? Jezebel. Jezebel, the third section. Do oh, in the first section. Do you think she he was called Jezebel because that was her name, or she was the type of person that Jezebel was? The second. I, I don't... She may have been called Jezebel, but I think that was a nickname to in order to evoke the attributes of the biblical Jezebel from the Old Testament... On, on, and to kind of put those upon this person. I don't, I, her, I think she probably had a, had a different name. She may have been named Jezebel. I, that's not a very beholding, what's, it wasn't a very nice name for anyone to be called. Well, I hope I don't offend anyone if anyone's named Jezebel here. <laughs> um, my question is, would it be safe to interpret as in, um, and going back to the first session and the letters to the... Um, um, the believers in seven the, the, the Church of the um, Laceodans. Mm -hmm. Sorry. 
Don't problem. feel bad. I couldn't pronounce it myself. So, do you think that um, it would be safe to interpret the same as the warnings that were given? Um, that when he said, "Look, and I will knock at the door, and I will come in if you open the door," is a reminder to us to let him in. So you're talking about in the in the Laodicean letter where he's talking about knock and I will come in. Yeah, I think I think what that's referring to is they because of their their lifestyle, because of their complacency and so forth, God has been has been trying to get into into their hearts and in, more active in their lives and they've been they've been closing the door to him. So he's knocking saying let me in let me uh, be close to you and so forth. Is that, is that kind of answer your question? Or? Yeah, no, what I was asking is if, if that was kind of his way of reminding them that if, if I knock and you let me in, I will come in and eat with you. Right, right. So not only was he giving warnings, but he was giving... A promise, right. It's a positive uh, knock and, I, and uh, you know, I'm going to come, I'm going to knock and please let me in and I can... Um, fellowship with you. Surely more people have questions. Just whether or not they're willing to say them publicly. Yeah. All right. And as a reminder, I am his right home. I guarantee you he's going to be here at least another 20, 30 minutes. You can come to him individually after we close out and ask questions. Let me take just two minutes of a pastoral prerogative to point out something here in the center for all you to recognize. Prior to this, most of us approach Revelation, and even some of you at the beginning, you asked questions. You had questions. And notice the subjects of your questions. Pre, mid, or post-trib. Who's the beast? Who's the whore? What bad is going to happen? When's it going to happen? Am I in the middle of it or do I escape it? Dr. Brickle has now spent six sessions with us and you are beginning to see that this book does not need to be looked at that way. What you have heard now is that this book is about us, both warning us and, Brother Scott, calling us to repentance and restitution, restoration, being made right with God. Second, the subject that we've just been listening to is not a subject of fear. It's not a subject of destruction. It is a subject of a God who is high and lifted up. And that God is our Savior. That God is our Lamb. That God is our Redeemer. And that if we are wrong, if we're on the wrong side of things, that God has a plan to put us on the right side of things. So ladies and gentlemen, not only next week as he brings us home, at least on this first installment, we may have to bring him back. He's a slow teacher, but he's done a good job of getting you because you now can walk through the rest of the book 
taking what has already been established and start asking the right questions. Stop asking the questions about when is stuff happening and start asking the question, God, what are you doing? Stop working in fear and start working in hope. Stop working about all of the destruction and look for all of the new creation that's going to occur. Stop focusing on the kingdom of Babylon and start looking at the new Jerusalem. All right, I'm done preaching, but you got my point. It's a whole different way of looking at this book. And it's high time that we redeem it and put it back. Yes, it uses crazy imagery, but let's redeem it and put it back where it's an encouragement that heaven's will will occur on earth. Can the church say amen? Amen. Amen. Dr. Brickle will be available to you. Come and ask him your tough questions as well. God bless you. Thanks, guys. We'll see you next week. Don't miss it.